You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. If you uh, maybe have been a little bit nervous or anxious about getting into the Minor Prophets, I hope that the book of Hosea will get you to uh, to get a little deeper, not only with the Minor Prophets, but also the Major Prophets. And I think, uh, I'm hoping that you're being able to see that the message that Hosea has, uh, much like many of the other prophets, is a mixture of both judgment and hope. It's a, it's a, it's a ministry and a message of turn and repent, uh, and also of God's pursuit of his people. Uh, Oftentimes the prophets are thought of of just being harsh, hard, edgy material. And yes, of course, uh, that is part of their messages, but I hope that you're being able to see that out of that is God's love for his people, where God continually, relentlessly pursues his people with his love. C.S. Lewis a uh, great author, a um, great philosopher, was once asked at one of his lectures. He was he was doing a lecture at college. Uh, at the end, there was a question and answer time where he would answer questions from the stage. And C.S. Lewis was asked if, after one of his lectures, which of the world's religions gives its followers the greatest happiness? If the pursuit of happiness Uh, is your goal, then what world religion can provide the greatest amount of happiness in your life? And Lewis, after thinking a moment, makes this statement, quote, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best, end quote. In other words, if you want instant, but very short-term happiness, then put yourself at the center of your world. That your focus becomes you. And while that may provide some temporary happiness, and while that might provide some, I don't know, some brevity with all the chaos that's going on in the world, trust me when I tell you it'll be short-lived. Because anything, any life that focuses entirely on itself uh, is not going to be happy for long, especially in a broken world. One of the main issues is, is, is you, yourself, alone, just you, as the center of your life, the God of your life, you have no answers for what's going on in this world right now. You have no answers for what's going on in Atlanta today and last night. You have no answers for what's been going on over the last seven weeks in our country with all the turmoil because deep down, if your pursuit is happiness and you're doing what is best for you and what serves you, and if everyone's doing that, then when trouble comes, you really have no answers for why it's happening. One of the major issues with the Northern Kingdom that Hosea has been given a message not only to to proclaim, but a message to live out in his life and in his home, is that these people, this Northern Kingdom, although they're worshiping false gods, one particularly, Baal, while they're worshiping a false god, what's happening at the end of the day is they're worshiping themselves. They are in control of their own lives and they're doing what they want to do. And idolatry always leads to self-worship. 
Because the idol that you're worshiping, whatever it is, in our context, we don't think much of, of statues and wooden totem poles and everything else in our culture. But we have plenty of idols in which to bow down to. It could be fame, it could be fortune, it could be power, it could be a bank full of money, it could be cars, it could be people, it could be any host of things. Anything that becomes the priority in your life has become a god with a little g. And these people in the Northern Kingdom are pursuing <clears throat> pursuing a false god with everything that is within them. And what's ultimately happening <clears throat> is that they are in control. It's self-worship. It's the pursuit of happiness. Gomer, Hosea's wife, has returned to prostitution. Now, we don't know how long after their marriage. It seems to indicate we don't have all of this information. The reason we don't have it is the Holy Spirit didn't seem like it was important to give it to us. But it seems as though after Hosea is commanded to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, and that there is children born to this family, and it's very possible that the children that are born are not Hosea's children, but the result of her prostitution, it's not long after the marriage that she goes right back to prostitution. She has returned to her lovers, just as the northern kingdom has turned away from God and turned towards idolatry. As you remember, Hosea represents God in the story. He is the representation of God, and he has a message from God to the people. But his marriage, his family life, Hosea kind of represents God in that life, and that Hosea's wife, Gomer, represents that northern kingdom and those leaders that are misleading the entire nation, the priesthood, the prophets, which we'll talk about today. The, the children represent the common people of Israel who, who were just following the leadership of those leaders. And what the real problem is here is not only have the leaders turned away from God, but in their example, for example, that they're setting for the nation, the common people don't even know who their father is. Because of their idolatry, the children, the common people of Israel, know nothing about God their Father, which is just incredible. Because these common folks that live in the northern kingdom, they should be hearing about the God of their fathers, the God who led them out of Egypt, the God who has blessed them and led them through the wilderness wanderings and gave them a promised land and has kept all of his covenant promises. They don't know anything about this father. They only know about Baal. They know a little bit about Jehovah God and a whole lot about Baal and they've mixed it all together into something that is displeasing to God and is going to bring judgment upon their head. In chapter 4, Hosea's message kind of takes the kind of takes the context of a courtroom. And we see this in other minor prophets, especially Micah, where, where the prophet is given a message and the way he communicates the message is almost like you're sitting in a courtroom. And formal, formal charges are going to be brought and then, and then the evidence is going to be brought out of, of what is the relationship between God's people and their creator. And Hosea's language and the way he, he words this sermon in chapter 4, it has the connotation of though Hosea is going to take his wife and bring her into a courtroom and evidence is going to be brought forward on whether she's being faithful in her marriage or not. Of course, the metaphor is, is that God is going to take the northern kingdom into the courtroom. Uh, people who were to be married to God in a covenant relationship with God 
and he's going to bring them into a courtroom and he's going to bring some formal charges against them and then he's going to bring forth a body of evidence and the evidence is going to point to something very clearly. There is something seriously wrong in the relationship between God's people and God. Should a covenant people, should a people who have been set apart by God unto himself, should they live differently than the world that's around them? Should they love differently? Should they talk differently? Should they think differently? Should the way they view the world be different? Or should those people just name the name of God yet live just like everyone else? That's what's ahead here. That's what Hosea has been called to do, not only to, to preach, but to, but to live out. That, that in a marriage relationship, should his wife, Gomer, should she live with Hosea in fidelity and in honesty and faithfulness, or does the marriage be nothing more than something that was written on a piece of paper in a ceremony, and now she can go live any way she wants to? Is that what marriage is? Is, is a covenant relationship between God and his people nothing more than some promises that were made years ago that really don't matter today, that, that God's people can live as they choose? We talked about a term called syncretism last week where you just mix everything in together, a lot of different pieces, and you mix them in and you try to make one whole out of them. And what I have found, both in studying God's Word, the nation of Israel, and my own life, that when we try to mix things in with our worship and honor and faithfulness to God, it doesn't end up becoming something stronger. Your convictions don't end up stronger, they end up weaker. Your commitment doesn't end up stronger, it ends up weaker. When we try to mix the world in with following Jesus, our convictions don't get stronger, they get much, much weaker. And the distinction of who you are and who you've been called to be is clouded by your participation in what the world says is important. What about a new covenant people? You know, we're, we're in an old covenant setting here with, with the nation of Israel who have been called out by God and separated and yes they put their faith in God and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had passed this covenant down all through these years. These are a covenant people but they also have free will and they have the ability to choose and they're not choosing very well at this point and that's why God has stepped in. What about a new covenant people? You and I. New Testament folks, new covenant folks, folks who who have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing to, Jesus Christ the righteous, who would die a, a single lamb, slain before the foundation of the world, dying in our place, taking upon himself our sins, and offering us freedom. That new covenant that is sealed in his blood, do, do, are we to act as a, as a different people? Are we to be separate from the world? Are we to, are we to just synchronize and just be part of the world and part of Christ's body and somehow try to make that work? The question is, is, is there enough evidence if, if you were to sit in a courtroom, would there be enough evidence of your faith in Christ and the way you live your life that points to the fact that you've been changed, that you are a new covenant, Christ follower? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. You know what? You know what Hosea is doing here? 
Hosea is bringing forth the formal charges from God of the northern kingdom's husband, Israel's husband, has stepped forward and says, here is the problem that I've got. The problem that I have with my people, my covenant people, is this. They are not faithful. Of course, within the imagery of marriage, means that they have cheated and turned their back on their one true husband. They're not faithful. They, they are not they have broken the covenant. They have turned their back on me and they have run towards prostitution and adultery. Not physical adultery, but the adultery of, of aligning themselves with a God that is no God at all. They have turned their back on their husband, God, and have run towards another lover. That has been the imagery all through, will be the, all through the book of Hosea. He says, first of all, there's no faithfulness. And of course, with no faithfulness, the next thing that's going to be in question is their steadfast love. They're saying that on the one hand, they love God. They love the God of their fathers, but their actions are not backing that up. They're not faithful to him. I can't tell you how many times I have sat in an office or in a home somewhere. And I have heard a spouse say, well, I love my spouse. I really do. I love my spouse. But this other person is what brings me happiness. Now, now can that statement be true? Can it, can it possibly be true where, where you say that you love your spouse, but yet you're pursuing another person outside the confines of marriage in adultery, and you're saying, well, I love this person, but this person over here is, is where I'm going. How can that possibly both be true at the same time? It can't be. And that's what God is saying here in this quorum. He's saying there's no faithfulness, and therefore there's no steadfast love. You can't say that you love God yet not be faithful to Him. And then he says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. To me, that's an incredible statement. Of all that God has done for this nation, He has the nation is split. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. But all through their history, over and over and over again, God has been faithful to them. God has shown steadfast love to them. He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet, both to the southern kingdom and to the northern kingdom. And he said over and over again, I love you, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to correct you. Instead of wiping his hands clean to the entire nation, he continues to pursue them. And yet, there is no knowledge of God in the land. They've completely forgotten about it. They have turned their heart and their minds or something that will bring them no hope and no peace. And then verse 2. So, so the, the formal charges is there's no steadfast love, there's no faithfulness, you've turned your back on me, and there's no, there's no knowledge of me. How can, you, how can you love a God you don't know? How, how could you be steadfastly in love? How could you be faithful to the God that you don't even know who he is? You don't know his history, you don't know what he's done in the nation. And you know what that turns into? Verse 2. A manifestation of how they're living. Look at this. There is swearing, in other words, taking oaths that they're not keeping. They are lying, they're being deceptive. They're, they're killing uh, people. They're, they're, they're taking other people's lives. They're stealing, taking things that aren't theirs. They're committing adultery. Now, this is the physical act of adultery. In other words, the, the marriage relationships within the northern kingdom are suffering because their love and their faithfulness to God is suffering. And look at this, they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. What a, what a stunning statement from Hosea when we look at our current situation here in America. There are no bounds 
and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So the formal charges are there's no love, you don't know who I am, and you've turned your back on me. And, and the, the evidence of how you're living your life is pointing to the fact that there's no faithfulness, steadfast love, or knowledge of God in the land. By the way, you're swearing, lying, murdering, sin. In other words, your life, your life is a testimony of whether you're truly in a loving relationship with God, your father, and your husband. He says, verse 3, therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken. The land itself is suffering, drought. The, the, the sea is being overfished because there's a lack of food. The land itself is mourning and groaning. And remember, when the people came into the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that had plenty of sustenance for the people. But yet, in God's judgment, they're suffering. Look at verse 4. Now I want you to see who's going to get charged here. So now we have the formal charges, but who are those charges directed at? Look at verse 4. Let no one contend, and let no one accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. Notice this. In, in the metaphor that we've been seeing in the book of Hosea, the, the one who has turned the nation away from God, the one that God is holding accountable, is the leadership and the priesthood of the nation. Why is it there's, that no one in the land knows about God? Why is it that, that there's such ignorance about God their Father? It's because the priesthood and the prophet have failed in their duties. They are no longer teaching the people about God because their hearts are turned towards a false God and false worship. Verse 5, You shall stumble by day, and the prophet, notice the prophet also, shall stumble with you by night. The prophet and the priest were working together, and they're misleading the entire nation. And as the priesthood and as the prophets had turned their attention toward Baal, the nation follows their example, and the entire nation is committing adultery on God who had blessed them and loved them and pursued them. Think of verse 6. God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. There is such a famine of God's word in the northern kingdom, that, that whatever they heard being taught by the prophets of Baal, that then infiltrated and influenced the prophets of God and the priests of God, whatever the people heard taught, whatever, whichever way the wind was blowing was where the people went. And there was a lack of knowledge in the land of the one true God, and those people were being destroyed because of it. Could we not say exactly the same thing today? Can we not see exactly the same thing that within the pulpits and churches of our land, there has been such an outright departure of God's true inspired word that it very well could be that the fruit we're seeing in our country today is because so many churches, so many ministries have turned their back on the word of God. I think it's very possible. I'm not a prophet, don't claim to be, but I see some, I see some correlation here. He says, my people are destroyed, destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they were being, they were, no one was teaching them. No one was telling them about their father. And he says here, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Of course, priesthood, 
prophets, leaders, if, if you're going to turn your back on the law of God, if you're going to turn your back on all the history of what God has done, I can tell you right now, there's no good going to come from that, and I will drop judgment, bring judgment to you and your children. Who are the children of the priesthood? Well, it's the common people. The people who look to the priesthood and the prophets to lead and to teach. And what do they see their priesthood and prophets doing? Bowing to an idol of Baal. <laughs> Just like all the pagan nations around. Look at this. It says, verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. What, what is he talking about increasing? So God is saying in this courtroom through Hosea, the more you've increased, is it, is it the increase of the number of priests and prophets? Yeah, probably. Or is it the increase of wealth and prosperity? You see, right before Hosea begins his, begins his ministry, under the leadership of Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom was thriving. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of money. Everything was going fine. They were at the pinnacle of power, influence, the northern kingdom was doing the best it had ever done under Jeroboam II at the same time Hosea comes on the scene. And from that stage, from all that wealth and prosperity, they go from that to going into a drought and almost starving to death. And God says to them, the more you have increased, the more you sin against me. Does that not sound familiar? That the more prosperity, the more opportunity to sin? He says, I will change their glory into shame. Look at verse 8. They feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. Look, this is not just a priesthood and a leadership and a group of prophets who are kind of dabbling in Baal and idol worship. No, they are pursuing it, and it says here that they enjoy them. They enjoy the sin. They enjoy what's happening in the, in the worship of Baal. They enjoy it. And they're pursuing it. They're greedy for iniquity. Look at verse 10. It says they shall eat, but they will not be satisfied. You see, that's the pursuit of all idolatry. Pursuing an idol, putting something in your life that is not God, and, and, and pursuing it with your time, your talent, and your treasure, there is this lie that we believe. That we, we believe that somehow money, and the acquiring of money, and wealth, and fame, and power, whatever you want to put in the blank, there's this lie that we believe initially. And we believe it over and over again that it's going to bring happiness, it's going to bring joy, it's going to bring peace. If, if I can just have all the money that I can possibly need, have all my bills paid, and, and not have to worry about any of that, then I'll finally be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's a facade. It's not real. It says here, they shall leave. They will never be satisfied. That deep down satisfaction of knowing that you are loved that you're forgiven. That your relationship with your creator is the way. That's, that's where peace is found. It's not in the pursuing of things that are less than God. They'll never satisfy. You know where this leads? Look at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking self gives them oracles. What does that mean? Well, the people, the common people, are no longer running to God. And seeking God and praying to God, they're going to sticks and idols and totem poles and statues looking for understanding 
In other words, in this vacuum of God's word, where God's word is not being proclaimed, people are going to seek out truth. You know where they're going? They're not going to Jehovah God. They're not going to the faith of their fathers. They're going to Baal. They're going to a piece of wood. They're going to a walking staff. For a spirit of boredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. That is hard language, but it's true. This in the courtroom, the charges that are being brought, is the fact that the people have turned their back on God. And they are pursuing idols. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of mountains, and they burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth. Because their shade is good, what was happening in the northern kingdom with these other pagan nations, they would have these altars built on the tops of these hills underneath all of these trees in the shade. And the reason they were in the shade is because of all of the absolute evil sexual sin that was occurring in the worship of Baal. They would do it under the trees in the Baal, out in the open with no shame whatsoever. And the nation of Israel begins to put their eyes on that. They begin to see their priesthood participating in that mess. They begin to see their prophets no longer proclaiming the word of God, but on the mountainside worshiping Baal. And the people go, well, what should we do? Well, let's join in. And God says, I have some charges to bring against you. Look at verse 16. This will be like the closing argument. This will be like God's closing argument in the courtroom. He says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in raw pasture? God says, okay, it's, it's decision time. And in the closing argument, God says, listen, can I feed you like one of my sheep when you're a stubborn heifer? When you're running towards something I've told you clearly, is going to bring destruction into your life. How in the world am I going to gather you back in and feed you as though you're my sheep? Turn over to James chapter 4, if you don't mind. James chapter 4. James, if you've ever read, read the book of James, uh, James has a way of writing that is very much like a courtroom. He, he, uh, there's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of pomp and circumstance. James just puts it out there the way that it is. James is not a book you read for the faint-hearted because he gets right to the point. Or maybe it is. Maybe if you want to really get to the core issues of maybe what's going on in your heart, the whole book of James may be the book for you. But the way, you, the way the book of James reads is almost as though James is stating, here are the charges, here are the issues, this is what needs to be corrected. I once, I heard a story once of a, of a goose who was flying south for the winter and he kind of got tired and uh, all of a sudden had a little bit of an injury in his wing and he can't fly anymore so he lands in a, in a barnyard where there's a bunch of chickens. So he begins to play with the chickens and he begins to eat with the chickens and he begins to live in the same coop with the chickens and after a series of several months, the goose begins to think he's a chicken. Well, a year later, while he's in this barnyard and he's been living like a chicken for a year, he looks up and all of a sudden he hears honking up in the sky. And he looks over and there's a formation of geese flying south again. And there's something in his heart that just kind of wakes up. It's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I had a former life. That's, that's who I used to be. I, I don't belong here. I, I belong there. So he begins to flap with all the strength that he's got, and he tries to try to get back up in the air, but because it's been so long since he flapped his wings, he said, oh, it's not worth it. So he turns around, heads back, and lives his life out as a chicken. And see, the thing is, 
He heard the cry that awakened his heart, but he decided to sell for less. Look at what James has to say. James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? Your passions are at war. Your passions are at war. James is talking to a new covenant people. And he says that there's something at war in you, and there's, there's something vying for your attention. It's, and it's not God. And it's trying to mislead you and take you down a path that's going to take you away from God. And there's this war going on inside of you. And it's causing divisions. It's causing all kinds of problems. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. Following Christ, putting your faith in God and following Him, loving Him, serving Him, for these people wasn't enough. They were seeking something else. He says, you covet and cannot obtain. In other words, you want something else, but you can't get your hands on it. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, but you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, you can ask, you can ask and you receive it, but here's the problem. You're asking for the wrong motivation. So, he says, verse 4, you adulterous people. Does that seem familiar? Yeah, James is saying pretty much the same thing that Jose was saying hundreds of years before. He says, you're an adulterous people. What does he mean? He says, your heart is being aligned with something that is not God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So here's James saying, here's the issue. Just like Jose was saying, here are the core issues. James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is, that is strong language. You, you, can't be, you can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. If you're trying to be a friend of the world, you're committing adultery on God. The same thing that Hosea said hundreds of years before to the northern kingdom. He says, you can't be married and act as though you're single. So where is all this leading? Go back to go back to Hosea. Go back to Hosea. So we're dealing with the court trial here. What's God going to do with this northern kingdom? Well, he's going to bring judgment. Assyria is going to come in and destroy them. But I want you to back up to chapter 40. Now, the, 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 the book of Hosea, and one of the problems we have with reading minor and major prophets is, is we read things chronologically. We're reading like, okay, so, so Hosea says this, and he says this, and he says this. And the, the prophets, especially the minor prophets, are not always laid out chronologically. Major prophets either. Jeremiah is pretty much laid out chronologically, but then all of a sudden he'll throw a sermon in there from out of nowhere that doesn't really fit the flow of anything else. And it seems like the prophets are going all over the place topic-wise. So why would I read through chapter 4 and then go back to chapter 3? Because 3 comes before 4. Why, why would we not do 3 first? Well, here's why. Because these are sermons. These are messages. But they're also actions that Hosea is living out. And chapter 3 is a narrative. Chapter 3 is something that Hosea actually did. He's not proclaiming a message. He's living out the life that God has called him to live out. Remember, Hosea is going to preach a message, but he's also going to embody a message. So, so is God going to just say, I'm done with the northern kingdom. I'm going to wipe my hands of this, of this wife of mine because she continues to pursue 
other men. I'm just going to wash my hands of her. And notice what happens in chapter 3. Because remember, Hosea's marriage to Gomer is an illustration of God's relationship to this northern kingdom. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Excuse me? Hosea, by law, could have stoned. He could have had Gomer stoned. He could have certainly walked away from this marriage and been justified doing it. As a matter of fact, the entire community around Hosea and Gomer, the talk of the day is, have you heard the prophet of God has married a prostitute and she's went right back to prostitution? Have y'all heard them? Have you heard the news? Uh, no doubt in my mind. Hosea and Gomer were the talk of the town. And God says to Hosea, Hosea, I know your wife has left you again and has went back to prostitution. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down. I want you to find her because here's something that's interesting. We're not told how this happens, but Gomer somehow ends up sold as a slave, probably as a slave to prostitution. And she's down in the marketplace downtown, and she has been put on a block, and she's being sold as a slave downtown in the market square. Now, when this would happen, when female slaves, especially prostitution female slaves, well, what happened is the woman would be put up on a block on a high platform, and she would be have all of her clothes removed so that the potential buyers could look at what they're going to buy. This is where Hosea's wife is. And God says, Homer, go down. Hosea, go down to the market square, and you are going to love a woman who is loved by not just one other man, but multiple other men. And those men are standing in that market square at this moment. Even as the Lord loved the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of praises. You know what? God was still madly in love with his people. Even though they have treated him like this, even though the charges are very clear, uh, even though the people are clearly giving evidence that there's nothing in their life that says they're devoted to their husband, he says to Hosea, Hosea, you get in there and you, you go to your wife. I know that she's in love with other men and sleeping with other men and she loves all of the benefits that comes with that. Verse 2, so I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man, so I also will I be with you. Isaiah walks right in the middle of this city square as his wife is standing naked in front of an entire group of people, men who are yelling at her and using her and abusing her and who have been doing so. Men that she pursued. And Hosea walks right in the middle of that, of this mess. And he begins to bid for the wife that already belongs to him. Knowing all that he knows, hearing all the jeers from the crowd and all the all the mocking that's happened. Look at Hosea, he's down here, he's got to buy his own wife. Does he not know how many people in this crowd that his wife has been with? And I would imagine, we don't know, but I would imagine after Hosea wins the bid, he goes up and he covers up his wife, helps her off the platform. 
And maybe while everyone is jeering and everyone is making fun, he sits her down and he looks her in the eyes and he says to her, you must dwell as mine. You shall not play the prostitute any longer. You'll not belong to any other man. And I make a commitment to you that neither will I. What love, what grace, what mercy. This is a picture of what God is doing with the northern kingdom. God is pursuing the northern kingdom even as the northern kingdom pursues other lovers. But there's something more here that we must see. Is that God and all that we see in the Old Testament, all that we see in the minor prophets and major prophets, they were all pointing to one who would enter a sin-cursed, broken world that was mocking God, mocking the Son of God, willing to put Him on a cross, beating nearly to death, and eventually hanging for everyone to see and watch Him bleed to death and die and be mocked. He entered this broken world for what purpose? To purchase a bunch of people who were slaves to sin and give them true life. And why did he do it? What motivated him to do it? Love. The law said, the law said we should be judged. The law said we should be punished. The law said we should be cast aside. The law said that there was no way we could ever be made righteous or be made to a covenant people. If Jesus comes and says, I'm going to fulfill the law for you. Because I want you to know that I love you. And all your sin, and all your shame, and all your tiredness, a love a relentless love, a love that doesn't give up, a love that doesn't turn its back even though you make a mistake. That's the kind of love that Isaiah is teaching us about. This, this is the kind of love that we find in the mind of prophet, and we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the perfect husband. Jesus Christ, the husband to the church, the perfect husband, the faithful husband, the one who will pursue and pursue and pursue even when the rest of the world has given up. There's no other God that can do that. There's nothing else you're running towards that's ever going to provide you that kind of love. Why would you want to run anywhere else? Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for what we're seeing in the book of Hosea. I can't imagine. It's hard for me to imagine Isaiah standing in that marketplace in those circumstances. The Father is an image of what you did, not only with the nation of Israel, but what you did through your Son in pursuing the world with your love and your grace. We can't find that anywhere else. There's nothing we can run into that can provide that kind of love and that kind of mercy and that kind of grace. So, Father, I pray that this morning, if we have become friends with the world as we're disciples, we become friends with the world. We become adulterous towards you. We've not gone too far. Your love and your grace abound. Father, if it's for salvation this morning, we've not gone too far. Your grace is sufficient. Father, we worship you, we love you, and we thank you for the goodness that you poured out in our life. We ask God in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.